There is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. John 15, verses 5 to 8. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Last night, we talked about the fact that no branch can bear fruit by itself. And of course, that is repeated again. Jesus makes it crystal clear that we cannot bear fruit by ourselves. And I'm assuming that during the past two years, if you uh, went to your conference where you talked about the potter and then the other one about the shepherd, you're very well aware of the fact that we are nothing but helpless clay, stupid sheep, and useless branches. What does that do to your self-image? Well, let's not waste two seconds on our self-image. Let's focus on Jesus Christ, and by comparison with him, just remember that we are exactly what he describes. We are stupid sheep and helpless clay and useless branches. But surrendered to him, we can do all things but only through Christ who strengthens us. And some of us might be thinking of another metaphor. The womb of a woman cannot bear fruit without the infusion of strength from the male. So there are so many different metaphors and so many times over and over again when the Lord reminds us that it takes more than one. It takes the work of God in us. And we are simply vessels. We are chalices, as Mary was when the angel came and gave her that staggering piece of news that she was to become the mother of God, of the Son of God. And her response was not, well, hey, wait a minute, I've got a few plans of my own. What am I going to tell Joseph? What will the people in the town think? How will I ever explain this to my parents? Her immediate re response was, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen, as you say. And I would trust that every one of us can honestly say that. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. That's all I am, Lord. I'm your servant. Do anything you want with me. Does that scare you? Did Mary know what she had in store for her? No, of course not. It was an instant act, an instant surrender, a willed, complete, total.
total self-abandonment. And a little legend, which is not found in the Bible, is that perhaps Gabriel, the angel whom God appointed to go and get this message, one wonders, the author of this little legend, I guess, wondered if perhaps Gabriel had to knock at quite a few doors in Nazareth before he came to Mary's door. There might have been a number of other women who said, no way. I am my own, I'm going to do my own thing, and this would be a great interruption to my plans. Of course, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, but we do know that there was one young girl, and probably between 13 and 15 years of age, something that may startle some of you, but Hebrew scholars tell her that tell us that a young girl would be in, would be betrothed between the ages of, of 13 and 15 in those days. So it was to a child, really, that the angel was sent. And that child gave herself unreservedly to do what God wanted her to do. So let's go to point one now for your outline. The title of the talk is Bearing, B-E-A-R-I-N-G, and number one, an inseparable relationship. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, and he's letting them know that he is going to leave them, which was a shocking fact and very scary to the disciples. But he made it perfectly clear that they would not be left alone, that the Holy Spirit would come to them. And we have that in John 14, verses 15 and 16. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And that verse crystallizes, in a nutshell, the proof of our love for God. You know, we love to sing about how much we love Jesus, and it's quite easy to sing about it. We can pray about it. We can talk about it. We can write poetry about it. But that's not what Jesus says is the crucial test of the validity of our love for him. The validity of our willingness to be a disciple, totally at his orders. And so he says, if you love me, he doesn't say write a poem about it or pray about it or sing about it. None of those things are wrong, but that's not the crucial test. The crucial test is, do what I say. Obedience, obedience, obedience. We're going to be talking about that later today. But verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor or comforter to be with you forever. So we don't ever need to think that God has abandoned us. Some of you may be feeling that this morning. Something has happened that makes you feel as though God has totally overlooked me. He has left me. And everything is black and bleak and dark and helpless and hopeless, and there doesn't seem to be any answer. And I can certainly think of a good many times in my own life when I was looking, as it were, into an abyss of darkness and not the slightest glimmer of light nor the tiniest echo from the, from the word of the Lord. And yet, and yet, I knew that his promise still stood, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
And did you know that that verse in Hebrews in the original language has five different negatives? In, Ameri in English, all we can say is never, 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 never. Because if you try to use two negatives in English, you end up canceling them out. So if you say, I ain't got nothing, that means you do got something. <laughs> but in Hebrew, you can say it five different ways. And that's the strength of that promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. The branch receives life from the vine and from every living limb, as Ugo Bassi's poem says, it bleeds wine. Can we separate the branch from the vine and expect to get anything? No. We shall see its way is not of pleasure nor of ease, but it's tied to a stake, and if its arms stretch out, it is but crosswise, all forced and bound. Does that say anything to you? It certainly should remind us of what happened to Jesus when he was nailed to that cross. Just like the vine is stretched out crosswise, and it endures in long, lone steadfastness the winter through. And next year blooms again, not bitter, for the torment undergone. Not barren, for the fullness yielded up. I don't know anything more destructive than bitterness. It is destructive of the very roots of your personality. It is destructive of your relationships with other people, and of course, it is hideously destructive of our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we become bitter, we are killing ourselves, really. Not in the good way, but just making it desolate, making ourselves desolate and hopeless. And so this beautiful metaphor of the vine is willing to pour out its life, to endure in long, lone steadfastness the winter through, not bitter for the torment undergone. And God can totally change your heart if you find yourself bitter today. The vine from every living limb bleeds wine. Now, who is the vine? My father is the gardener, and it is Jesus Christ who is the vine. And so when you and I bleed, he is bleeding with us. We do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That's what it says in Hebrews. But he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Isn't that wonderful? For whatever the deepest suffering you've ever known in your life, remember, Jesus Christ has been through that too. He was tempted in all points as we are. And he had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered. To me, that's just incomprehensible, humanly speaking. The Son of God, the maker of the universe, the one who put the stars up there, learned obedience? Who do we think we are if we imagine that we don't need to learn it? Every one of us has to learn obedience over and over again. You're looking at an old woman. And I realize I'm far from finished with the lessons that the Lord has to teach me. I would say virtually every day there's some tiny th little thing, at least, that crosses my preferences. 
And my second husband, Addison Leach, who was a philosopher and a theologian, used to say, when the will of God cuts across the will of man, somebody has to die. And Paul said, I die daily. It is an inseparable relationship. We are linked together with Christ as the, as the branch is linked to the vine. And when there is a separation there, there is no fruit and no possibility of any fruit. Jesus poured out his soul unto death. Again, the vine is pouring its life into the branches, pouring his life into you and me. We wouldn't be here today, would we, if it were not for that other life with a capital L, which is poured into us daily by his mercy, by his grace. And of course, ladies, I would not be here at all. I would never have written a book if it were not that God took my husband. Now, did you? I don't suppose you stopped to think about that, but it's just one of the things that I think about quite often. God, in his infinite mercy and in his inscrutable wisdom, allowed five American missionaries to be killed back in 1956 in Ecuador. My husband was one of those. Well, I got to know the people that had done the killing. A couple of years later, I learned their language, and of course... Can you imagine what question I wanted to ask them when I learned the language? Why did you kill my husband? They said, we thought he was a cannibal. We thought he was coming to eat us. And so those men who had done the killing became Christians. But the amazing pattern that God is working on all the time, an inseparable relationship. My husband was not separated from Christ in death. He was only separated from his wife. And some of us have been separated from our husbands by death and some of us by divorce. And it's always an extremely painful thing. But the Lord can restore and fulfill and change our hearts. And he has amazing and unimagined things that he can do through us. I never imagined being anything but a jungle missionary. A linguistic missionary, that's what I was doing. I worked for three different Indian tribes in Ecuador. Never imagined writing a book. If you write a book, then people get the idea that maybe you can talk. <laughs> and once after you've been talking for years, then somebody comes along and says, well, how about go on the, going on the radio? And so all these amazing and unexpected things happen in my life. I had nothing to do with it. I was just one person in a remote area of the jungle. Jesus poured out his soul unto death, and therefore you and I have salvation. And he offered himself for you and me. But you and I have to make the decision if we want to be received into the vine, if we want to be linked to him and become inseparable as the branch and the vine become. We are to be received into Christ who is the vine, and we are to remain, which means what? Stay there, stay there, abide, remain, stay put. Don't cut yourself off. Don't shake your fist in God's face if you want to have peace. And remember those wonderful words 
that I read you last night from Ugo Bassi. Measure thy life by loss instead of gain, not by the wine drunk, but by the wine poured forth. For love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice. You mothers know what it is to sacrifice for your children. All of us who are wives of still living husbands, we have to lay down our lives for them. And of course, it's their business to lay down their lives for us too, but it's not our business to make sure they do that. <laughs> it's our business to make sure that they want to do that because we treat them like kings instead of just ordinary human beings. Measure thy life by loss instead of gain, not by the wine drunk, but the, by the wine poured forth. For love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice. And he that suffereth most hath most to give. So that brings us to the second point, which is sacrifice. Love always means sacrifice. The vine, Bassi says, stands stripped and desolate. It is a total relinquishment to God, to the vine. I'm sure that many of you could quote John 3.16 for me, but I wonder how many of you know on the tip of your tongue 1 John 3.16. It's a corollary to John 3.16. And 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. And we, in our turn, are to lay down our lives for each other. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we are to lay down our lives for each other. Now, a woman, when she becomes pregnant, realizes very quickly that there is another life there. A totally other life. You don't know whether it's male or female. You don't know whether it's going to look like you or like your husband or like somebody you've never seen in your life. <laughs> and you sacrifice in a, very, in a variety of ways. Those of you who have morning sickness, I can't even imagine how awful that must be because the Lord didn't require that of me in the one time that I was pregnant. But it is a self-giving of, of my life for the sake of another life. And for those of you who are single, so far God has not given you children. God has not given you a husband, perhaps. You may be single and never have had a husband. God knows all about that too. But you know, if you have a child to raise, it means sacrifice. Starts right out when the baby's born with those sleepless nights and the impossible responsibility. I'll never forget as long as I live the day that my one little child was born. And I was reduced to tears almost at once when I looked at that precious, incredible, beautiful little package and thought to myself, nobody in this world is responsible for this child except Jim and me. And we're not adequate. I just said, Lord, I cannot mother this baby as she should be mothered. Help me. And so the Lord began then to teach me. This is what you do. You give up your right to yourself. You give up your right to your sleep. You give up your right to going places. You give up a whole lot of things. 
Love always means sacrifice. And marriage always means sacrifice. If you didn't believe that before, I certainly hope you've learned it. <laughs> it is a surrender. Will you take this woman to be thy wedded wife? And the husband is surrendering his right to be single and saying, yes, I will take on this unimaginable responsibility. <laughs> and of course, when they're standing up there in front of all these wonderful people that think it's so marvelous, they're really not thinking about what it, the price is going to be. And it might be about 24 hours later that all of a sudden you're just overwhelmed. A friend of mine told me that th after she'd been married for three weeks, she was on the phone with her closest friend and she said, I've married the wrong man. <laughs> and her friend said, join the club. Marriage is a sacrifice. Marriage is a surrender, but it is a wonderful one. It is a glad one with all sorts of unexpected tests. And I think I speak with a certain measure of authority, shall I say, in having been married to three very, very different men. Totally different. I'm sure that there are a good many of you that think, well, if only I'd married so-and-so, or if only I had not married this one, maybe I would have been a better wife. Well, God has tested me not once, not twice, but three times so far. <laughs> now, you know what that man, Lars, you know what he did? Now, this, is, this gives you an idea of what an unusual man he is. He's never been threatened by hearing me talk about Jim Elliott or Addison Leach. He's a very big man, but he said, I would like you to get a triptych frame, a frame that'll hold three pictures, and I would like to have all three of us men in that frame. <laughs> so the Bible says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. So I did what he asked me to do, and he wanted, to, wanted me to put it in the living room, and I was so embarrassed because I thought, I'm gonna have to explain this to every person that comes in here. Because what woman in her right mind would put up all three of her husbands for everybody to see? Well, then Lars had a second thought. Why didn't we get a four-picture frame so that we could put a question mark in the last one? Well, I am now united to this one man, Lars Grin, different as night and day from Ad or Jim. And of course, Ad was different from Jim, and Jim was different from Lars, and Ad was different from Lars, etc. So I know that it is a surrender, I know it is a sacrifice, and I know that many new brides don't have the tiniest inkling of what they're getting into. But we are one, and it is a sacrifice. And my heart goes out to all of you single women who have never had a husband. And you say, when is God going to bring along this wonderful man? As if Elizabeth Elliot could possibly give you an answer to that one. <laughs> I get so many letters from women telling me that they've been praying and praying and praying and they've remained pure sexually and they've done everything right and they're perhaps missionaries now or they're hoping to be missionaries. But Elizabeth, when is God going to bring this man along? I don't know anything more about it than they do, do I? I thought it was a miracle I got married the first time. I didn't expect 
that I would ever get married. I was not a popular girl. Couldn't imagine that God would end up giving me at least three husbands. <laughs> but when we surrender to Jesus Christ, it is a total transfer of our rights to ourselves, which is what Mary did. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. So to you singles who are longing and aching for what you think would make you happier than anything else in the world, <laughs> let me just say, God knows exactly what is necessary for you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we who are married realize that every day there are new lessons in being conformed to the image of Christ because we happen to live with a, with a man. And you know, when I was single, and I've been single more years in my life than I've been married, many more years, somehow or other I didn't seem to have a very long list of sins to confess when I was living all by myself. <laughs> but there's something that happens when you find yourself united to a man who turns out to be fallible. And then you realize that your list of sins is greatly multiplied. So it, we must make this deliberate transfer of my rights and who I am and all that I am to Jesus Christ. And of course, if we are wives of husbands, we are to be subordinate to them. And we could spend a lot more time on that, but I'm going to leave that right there. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we are to present our bodies. And you and I have only got one, haven't we? Mine happens to be white, tall, Anglo-Saxon, and old. It's the only body I'm going to have to present to Jesus Christ here on this earth. Now, I know we're all going to have a resurrection body, and I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. But I know that I am to present my body as a living sacrifice. And I think it's a good thing to ratify that each day. You've done it once, perhaps, 20 years ago. But you can just say, Lord, behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. Do anything you want with me today. I'm all yours. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, which is an act of spiritual worship. Now, you use the word worship for the singing that you do, and that, of course, is one aspect of worship, but the presentation of your body is another aspect, and only you can do that individually and solitarily before God. And then he says that we are to have a renewed mind. That's a wonderful thing to realize that when we have presented our bodies to Jesus Christ, we then are given a renewed mind. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is an act of spiritual worship. It is a new life when you're married. It is a new life when you commit yourself to Jesus Christ. 
And for you wives, let me give you one little rule that will simplify your life with your husband. Start seeing Christ in him. Now, what do I mean by that? And give me the scripture you want to say. <laughs> I will. Matthew 25, Matthew 10, 25 says, wait a minute, Matthew 10, 25 and Matthew 25, 40, I get mixed up. Anyway, it's one of those two that says, inasmuch as you've done it for one of the least of these my brothers, you have done it for me. Now, if you're talking about rescuing a tiny child who has been dumped in the gutter in Calcutta, as Mother Teresa did, or if you're talking about the man who shares your bed and sits at your table and has that favorite chair in the living room, we are to see Christ in our husbands. Now, is that easy all the time? Is he acting exactly as Jesus Christ would act every minute of every day? And the answer is no, nor am I. So it is my job to learn to see Christ in my husband. And remember that love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice. And he that suffereth most hath most to give. And if you're suffering today, go to somebody else who has learned the lessons of suffering. Because that's the person who will have the most to give. And when I look back on my own life and how greatly blessed I have been to have a good many spiritual mothers, some of them that I knew in the flesh, some of them like Amy Carmichael that I knew only through their books, I was greatly blessed in having these spiritual mothers. And you know what? When I examine their lives, every single one of them had suffered deeply. He that suffereth most hath most to give. But of course, you'll have nothing to give if you don't remain in the vine. If you don't stay close, stay put, be there with Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there's probably somebody in your life, perhaps not a husband, maybe a boss, maybe a neighbor, maybe that awful woman in the church that you wonder how in the world we ever got her on the committee. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with people that are just impossible to get along with. Well, let me give you Mother Teresa's answer to that. People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spent years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. What are we supposed to do? Help them anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. anyway. And don't fall into the ditch of saying, 
But what about my needs? What does the Bible say about your needs? My God shall supply all your needs. Do you believe that? Is there something that you think you should have had yesterday and God has not given it to you? Well, because you didn't need it yesterday. And maybe you don't need it today. But if you need it tomorrow, God will take care of that. What a difference it makes when we start seeing Christ in our husbands, when we start remembering that love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice, and then those wonderful rules of Mother Teresa's. You may be able to think of a few things that are not on her, her list, but you can add that anyway to yours. Now, number three is the proof of discipleship. My life is hidden with Christ in God, it says in Colossians 3.3. Hidden with Christ in God. Another expression of that inseparable intimacy. Once we have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ, we are his. I am his, and he is mine. I do not belong to myself. Elizabeth Elliot has been crucified with Christ. That's what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ. Nailed to the cross. Helpless. Immovable. Nevertheless, he says, I live. This is the great mystery, isn't it, of salvation. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, this deteriorating, aged flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, who loved me, and gave himself for me. He gave himself to every single one of us. And we have to come and say, thank you, Lord. That's all we can do. I give myself to you. The hymn that says, dear Lord, I give myself to thee in all that I possess. I lay aside my sinful pride and claim thy righteousness. My will lies wholly at thy feet. I pray thy will be done. My only plea to live for thee and magnify thy son. And John 15, 8, the chapter that we're in. It says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And that fruit bearing may be very hidden in your life. God may not necessarily give you the privilege of leading worship with music. He may not give you the privilege of speaking in public or the privilege of writing books and doing all sorts of wonderfully uh, romantic seeming things that God has given me to do. But God has his own wonderful ways of assigning to us the task which may perhaps be the hardest thing. And I had a dear old friend, a lady who never married. She was in her 90s when she died. She lived on Cape Cod. And she used to always call me Betty Dear. And she said to me one day, she said, you know, Betty Dear, I believe that God gives to each one of us the very thing that is hardest for us. So you don't know what's hardest for me, and I don't know what's hardest for you, 
but we both have the same assignment, don't, don't we? Remain in the vine. Abide and prove your discipleship. Of course, Ugo Bassi was speaking to those who were ill, those who seemed most useless and helpless. Let me read to you from this poem of his. If this be the hardest ill of all for mortal flesh and heart to bear in peace, and illness may not be the hardest thing for you. I have seen a few handicapped people here since last night, and we don't know that their being in a wheelchair is the hardest thing for them, but God knows, doesn't he? He knows exactly what is the hardest. So Bassie says, if this be the hardest ill of all for mortal flesh and heart to bear in peace, it is the one that comes straightest from God's hand and makes us feel him nearest to ourselves. God gives us light and love and all good things richly for joy and power to use aright. But then we may forget him in his gifts. We cannot well forget the hand that holds and pierces us and will not let us go. It's not hard to forget God in our joys, is it? C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our joys. When everything's going wonderfully well, we don't even think about God a lot of the time. It's when something happens and the whole world comes crashing in that even an atheist may forget himself long enough to say, oh my God. <laughs> but secondly, Lewis said, he said first, he speaks, he whispers to us in our joys, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. We can't avoid it. Pain is God's megaphone. And Bassey says, we cannot well forget the hand that holds and pierces us and will not let us go, however much we strive from under it. And back to the metaphor of the vine. The vine is always striving to get out there, to do something, to bear, and it's constantly being thwarted and cut back in painful ways. You want to do something for God? And it just seems as though he's not going to let you do it. The proof of your discipleship is the willingness to receive to accept that hand that pierces. If God speak to thee in the summer air, the cool, soft breath thou leanest forth to feel upon thy forehead, dost thou feel it God? In other words, does, does it, do you realize that it's God that's speaking to you in the summer air and the cool, soft breath? Nay, but the wind. And when heart speaks to heart and face to face, when friends meet happily, and all is merry, God is also there. God speaks himself to us as mothers speak to their own babies upon the tender flesh with fond, familiar touches, close and dear. But he cannot choose a softer way to make us feel that he himself is near and each apart his own beloved and known. 
And I love this, how I wish I could read it all for you. He gives his angels charge of those who sleep, but he himself watches with those who wake. Have you been troubled with sleeplessness? Jesus watches with those who wake. He may give his angels charge over us who have it easy and can sleep without any problems. But remember that Jesus himself is watching with those who wake. Sweet it is when a babe opens his eyes, blue and smiling to its mother's morning kiss. But thou, when waking to the morning light, with unrefreshed and aching limbs, mayest feel the heavy pressure of a constant pain upon thy forehead. And I remember the worst time for me when Jim was killed was early morning. I don't know what it is for you widows, but when I would wake in my house in the jungle and there were no other missionaries there, it was just, just Indians, suddenly the realization would flash again. Jim's not here. The bed's empty. He's not coming back. And so there was that heavy pressure of constant pain. So what was I supposed to do? Sink into a pile of self-pity and say, well, I'm just feeling, I have a right to feel sorry for myself and nobody's here to comfort me and nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> he that suffereth most hath most to give. And I was required to give and give and give to the Indians, not because they were aware of the fact that that's what I was doing, but they were there. God had put them there. And how I thank God for the lesson of Isaiah 58.10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, then the Lord is going to satisfy your life and you will become like a watered garden. I'm paraphrasing here, but Isaiah 58, 10 and 11. And I've just recently had a very beautiful illustration of that. I have an old aunt who's 90 years old. She lives in a retirement place in Pennsylvania, which is a long way from where Lars and I live in Massachusetts. So we can't get there to visit her more than maybe three, three or four times a year at the most. But a young woman, 38-year-old woman, who has been deeply depressed, she's had clinical depression. Do you know what that woman thought of doing? She lives in the little town where the retirement home is, and she decided that she would visit the old folks. Give herself, she who is suffering with clinical depression, she would go and just give herself to these old people. And she latched on to my dear Aunt Anne. And I have had about three or four letters from Joy saying, I can't tell you what getting to know your old aunt has done for my depression. It is exactly what Isaiah 58.10 is all about. I don't know any better therapy than giving yourself to cheer somebody else when you are in the bottom of the barrel. And the Lord brought Indians to my door every single day with endless demands. I had endless things to do. And in acceptance lies peace. If there's one rule that stuck in my mind and heart for the rest of my life from my readings of Amy Carmichael, it's those words, in acceptance lies peace. You can stew and fret and curse and yell and scream and thrust your fists heavenward at God and say, I don't like what you've done, you're going to make yourself miserable. You're going to make everybody around you miserable. 
or you can say, yes, Lord, I will accept what you've done. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.